Let's take our Bibles this morning and open to Acts chapter 2. We've been looking at the basics of the Christian life. Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at the title of the message this morning, The Basics of Church Life. Many have called Vince Lombardi the best football coach of all times. I know Detroit Lions fans would not admit that. Uh, but he took the Green Bay Packers, who had finished the 1958 season with one win, ten losses, one tie, to a season the very next year, seven wins and five losses. The next year he led Green Bay to win three straight league championships, won more than two more league championships in seven, within seven years, and uh, including the first two Super Bowl games, 1966 and 1967. But on one occasion, in a practice, he got so frustrated with the mistakes that the players were making that uh, he said something that's now referred to as the greatest quote in all of football history. He picked up the football and he said, men, this is a football. <laughs> Starting back at the basics, and sometimes we need to do that. Uh, this morning I'd like us to look at some of the foundational truths about church life. Some people, I've heard say, we need to have a New Testament church. And you know, it all depends on what you mean by that. Do you realize that the people in the New Testament, the New Testament church, didn't have all of the New Testament? <laughs> it was still being written. Now, also, something that makes them different is they had the apostles. The apostles spoke and taught without error. We know that from 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul said when the believers received the word of God, they received it not as it was the word of men, but as it was in truth, the word of God. The very next book, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he told them to stand fast and behold the traditions that had been taught, whether by word or our epistle. And so whether it was a spoken word, what they were preaching, or what they were writing, these were all inspired we don't have apostles today. We have a completed Bible. God has spoken, and it's sufficient, and we don't need extra new revelation. Be careful of someone who says, God told me to do this. Well, if he told you through his word, fine, but beware of the word of faith movement and the, uh, the things that that comes as far as extra revelation goes. Another difference between the New Testament church and the church today is that church discipline looked a little bit differently. Uh, God was letting people know right away that he was not to be lied to. And you remember about Ananias and Sapphira, who immediately died and were taken out of the church because Peter said, you lied not to me, but to the Holy Spirit. So when we say we want a New Testament church, I think what we mean to say is that we want to see God work in a way today as he worked then. We want to see people coming to Christ in faith and salvation. We want to see them being baptized, following the Lord in baptism, and joining a church, and being uh, enthusiastic. That's a great word. It means entheos, God in you. Being enthusiastic about who God is and what he can do for others. And the Greek word for church, ekklesia, comes from two words meaning called out. The church is a group of people who are called out of the world because of a new relationship they have in Christ. We're called out of the world and to Christ, out of sin, into God's wonderful grace. So let's not, let's not neglect that word church. It's a great word. Many churches are changing their names to be more inclusive today. Some have even dropped the name of church altogether. Horatius Bonar, who 
wrote way back in the 17th century saw the problem of a worldly church. He said, I looked for the church and found it in the world. And I looked for the world and found it in the church. We have become less called out and more inclusive than ever before in church history. So let's look at the beginnings of the church in the New Testament and get back to these basics. There are just three points that we'll look at today. The preaching of the New Testament church, the adding to the church, God added to the church daily, those that were being saved, and growing. The members continued in the basics. So first of all, there's an emphasis on preaching. When Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1-8, he said, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And when we come to Acts chapter 2, we find a fulfillment of that word. That this is when the Holy Spirit came upon them, is at Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost brought the Jews back to Jerusalem that had been scattered. There are three main festivals that the Jews would go back to Jerusalem for. Pentecost was one of them. They had been scattered throughout all these nations, and they were, were speaking now different languages. And the ones speaking at Pentecost were Galileans. But everyone miraculously heard them speak in their own language. And the languages are, are listed there. In Acts 2, verse 14, it says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice. That is, Peter and the eleven, Matthias had replaced Judas by now, here are the 12 apostles. They're probably the ones who are speaking here, and the people are hearing them in their own language. So what are some of the, the things that, that indicate or, or are, are themes of elements of Peter's message when he stood up and preached? Number one, he started by refuting the accusations of men. They claimed that these, uh, these apostles must be drunk to be able to, to speak like they were, and no one understood them except those in their own language. And Peter said immediately, no, it's, these aren't drunken as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. That would be nine in the morning. And then he clarified by saying, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Folks, today we need to let people know where they are wrong. There are a lot of different misconceptions about what goes on in a church, and we need to let them know what is really happening. That's what he did. He refuted the accusations. Also an element of his preaching, he based his message on Scripture. It's unfortunate today that people preach messages without using the Word of God in many churches. Uh, here in Acts 2.16, he said, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He was referring to something Joel said in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. He based his message on Scripture. Third, he preached salvation. Acts 2.21, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That has to be a part of our preaching today. People need to know how to be saved, how they can have their sins forgiven, how they can know that when they breathe their last in this life, they'll wake up in glory. And it can only be through salvation of what Jesus did on the cross. He preached salvation. He preached God's plan for sending his son to die, as well as man's responsibility for Jesus' death. Look at verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, that is, God planned this death of his son to satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God so that we could be saved from our sin, 
And he also shows man's responsibility in the second half of the verse. Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Fifth, he preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel. It's the core truth that's preached by every apostle in the early church. Acts 2.24, we see it in Peter's sermon. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. He quoted the prophetic words of David. Acts 2.27, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And he argued that this wasn't talking about uh, the, the, the Old Testament of David here. He's talking about Christ in verses 31 and 32. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. So the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ must be an integral part of our preaching in our churches today. We sing, death could not keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, up from the grave he arose. Resurrection because of the death and burial of our Savior. Notice also that he reminded them again of their responsibility for the crucifixion, for the death of Messiah, Acts 2.36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. There must be preaching that shows that man is responsible for Christ's death. He died in my place. He died because of my sin. It was substitutionary. I was responsible for his death. Another element of our preaching, uh, of the preaching in the early church, was the, the, the Holy Spirit working, the evident working of God. Notice verse 37, what happened when this preaching took place. Now when they heard this, they were pricked. The word there is pierced. They were stung in their heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's what we long for today. When God's word is preached, that people would respond with, what shall we do? There should be a response to the scriptures. And he gave the invitation to repent and be converted, Acts 2.38. Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, let me just give a clarification here. This is not teaching that you must be baptized in order to be saved. Baptismal regeneration, it's called. Does baptism save? No. Let me just give a point of this verse. If you look at the word repent, Acts 2.38, repent is in the plural. Ye, at the end of that verse, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, is also in the plural. So he's saying, you all repent and you will all receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is salvation. Be baptized is a phrase that stands alone by itself. It's, it's a command for an individual. It's in the singular. Every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, a separate phrase. So what Peter is saying here is repent for the remission of sin and be baptized. Baptism is an indication to others, a testimony, an outward testimony of what's taken place in your heart. 
So in the early church, God used preaching to bring men and women to salvation. Not entertainment, not activities, not even fellowship, uh, not dramas and skits, but preaching of the word of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Preaching had to take place. Also in the New Testament church, people were added to the church. This is what God's work was. The apostles' work was preaching. God's work was adding to the church. In Acts 1.15, there's a parenthetical phrase that shows us the number of disciples uh, at that time. It says, the number of the names together were about 120. That tells me that there was a list of names. Names represent people. There was a, a role to know who was included. Well, I said, what about that word about? Well, it could be a rounded off number, about 120. Or it may be that some were peripheral. Their names were on the roll, but they didn't always show up. You know what that's like. Notice the list gets longer. After Peter's sermon, 3,000 people are saved and join the church. They're baptized, saved, baptized, join the church. Acts 2.41. And they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They gladly received Peter's word, the message that he was preaching. That is, they believed the gospel. They trusted Jesus Christ. They followed the Lord and believers' baptism. And then they were added to the church. The order is critical. If we're going to have a, a church that follows the pattern of the New Testament, these need to be in order. Salvation comes before baptism. That means we don't baptize infants and hope someday they'll come out all, all right, they'll follow Christ, they'll be saved. That means we don't believe that baptism saves. It is a testimony of salvation after a person trusts Christ. Also, baptism comes before membership. Some people say, well, I don't think that's right, that you have to be baptized, in the, in the, immersed in the, in the tank in front of people in order to be a member. Can't I just be a member based on my infant baptism? Well, the biblical pattern is clear. Salvation, baptism, membership. Before we think we're the ones that are doing this kind of work, notice what it says in verse 47 at the very end, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. God is the one who added people to his church. Salvation is his work. Jesus is the one who said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Many men build businesses. The church is not a business. Man may build an organization. The church is not an organization. Only God builds a church. This is a spiritual body. It's God who adds to the church. Peter preached his next sermon in Acts chapter 3, verses 12 through 26. It was after the lame man was healed. And the key element of his preaching here in this message didn't change from his first message. He told them they were responsible for the death of Christ. He told them that God had raised Christ from the dead, death, burial, resurrection, again. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. But ye denied the Holy One and the just 
and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, that was Barabbas, and killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Again, he makes a plea for them to repent. Acts 3.19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And now, after this message, notice what happens, Acts 4.4. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. When we're talking about the 3,000, it was souls. But here when we get to the the 5,000, it's men. And I believe as in the feeding of the 5,000, the men were counted, but there could have been more. If their wives were included, it could have doubled. If children, could have been more. So over 5,000 here, I believe, were, were trusting Christ and following the Lord in baptism and membership. Some ask, well, is there a difference between the local and the universal church? When you have that many people, is he talking about the whole universal church or local assemblies? Well, there are biblical references to both universal and local church. The church universal is the body of Christ. It's made up of all believers of all ages, those who are asleep in Christ, those who are still alive. Every believer who has ever lived as a part of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.9 says that Paul persecuted the church of God. He wasn't just going to one assembly. He was going around persecuting, killing everyone in different churches. Universal church. Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Obviously, the universal body of Christ. Matthew 16.18. Upon this rock I will build my church. There's one church, a universal. But the Bible also talks about local assemblies. A group of, a, a, a local assembly, we would call a local church, is a group of baptized believers living in a certain area that meet together for worship, to minister to one another, to observe the Lord's Supper, to fulfill the great commission that was given to the church, and to maintain a holy testimony. There are several books in the New Testament that are addressed to local assemblies. 1 Corinthians 1.2, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. Philippians 1.1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Again, those assembled in a local group. Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia Minor are mentioned, local assemblies. So, is it important to be a member of a local church? Uh, We're following the pattern in the New Testament Christians met together in organized assemblies where pastors and deacons knew them and ministered to them. One pastor says in our day, there is not a verse that teaches you must join a church, but the Bible is clear. If you are a Christian, you will join a church. (laughs) So he's saying, show me in the Bible where I have to join. I can't, but I can show you the pattern. And if you're a Christian, you'll want to be a member of a local church. We saw in the book of Acts that the assembly grew from 120 to 3,000, added to 5,000 more. There are more references in the book of Acts that show numerical growth. Acts 5.14, and I think this is talking about a universal setting. And believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women. In Acts chapter 16, verse 5, here I think it's talking about local assemblies because the word church is in the plural. 
And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. So local churches grew in number. Um, They were reaching more people. There are also practical and even legal reasons to join an assembly of a local church. Uh, It helps us build our obligation toward one another, to edify each other, uh, to exhort one another, to use our spiritual gifts to minister to one another. It allows us to carry the business of the church out in a a legal and orderly fashion. Uh, Members are the ones who vote. Members are the ones who serve. Um, It gives us the opportunity to unite our efforts for missions. Fourth, it provides a time when we share a testimony of salvation. When someone comes, they want to join the church, we, we say on their profession of faith. And they get to share their testimony of salvation. And so we recognize that. Also, the matter of church discipline taught in Matthew 18 would be pointless if there were no membership. So, membership. God was adding to the church daily. Not only his universal body, but also to individual assemblies, those that were being saved. The church members continued to grow. There are some great verses in this chapter, chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, that show us specifically how the church grew. And again, these are, these are the basics of Christian growth in a, in a church. Verse 42, they grew spiritually. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. They continued steadfastly. Uh, the, The word continued means to be diligent toward, to persevere, and not to quit. We see it again in verse 46. And they continuing daily. So salvation didn't just change the way that what they did on Sundays. It was a daily growth. They were growing spiritually daily. They continued steadfastly. That is, they didn't drift away. They didn't say, you know, I've had enough religion. I've gone to church enough in my life. I know enough of the Bible. I don't think I need that anymore. They continued steadfastly. Persecution did not deter them. Hardships did not discourage them. They continued steadfastly. They continued in four specific areas that are given here in the text. In doctrine, growing Christians continued learning the truths of the scriptures. The problem with Christianity today, if you do a survey of people and start talking to them for any length of time, you'll find that their their faith is a mile wide and only inches deep. The church today is to have the blessings of God like the early church had. We must be like the church of Berea who searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. We need to know the book. We need to grow in doctrine. They also continued steadfastly in fellowship. Fellowship isn't just uh, having a meal with someone. In the Bible, the word fellowship means partnership. It involves investing our lives, our money, our time, our efforts into a common cause. The early church spent time investing in the cause of Christ. Don't just attend church. Be involved. You are the church. They continued in fellowship. They also continued steadfastly in the breaking of the bread. F.F. Bruce says, The breaking of the bread here denotes something more than the ordinary partaking of food together. The regular observance of the Lord's Supper is no doubt indicated. When we observe the Lord's table, and we will in two weeks, 
You need to be here. That's part of continuing steadfastly. Here in Jerusalem, people followed the Lord in believer's baptism. Now they begin observing the Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances of the church. Fourth, they continued steadfastly in prayers. Notice it's in the plural. We keep on praying. It's part of the Christian life. And I believe in a church setting that corporate prayer is important. Some people say, well, you know, I can pray by myself. And we ought to. But we ought also to pray together. What a blessing yesterday morning to have men come for Saturday morning men's prayer. We had 18 men here. The church gathered in the, in the New Testament to pray in Acts 12.5 when Peter was in prison. Prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. In Paul's second missionary journey, he left uh, Troas and went across to Macedonia. And they gathered at Philippi. And Acts tells us in uh, Acts 16.13, on the Sabbath day, they went out of the city by the riverside where prayer was wont to be made. That was where they, they got together. There weren't ten men for a synagogue, but they met together and they had corporate prayer. And that's when Lydia was converted. So a healthy church grows spiritually. We continue in doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread and in prayers. They grew also as they extended their testimony, verse 43. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. What was this fear? F.F. F. Bruce calls it a long-lasting sense of awe. It's a reverence because of the recognition of who God is. Who had this fear? Every soul, everybody, believers and unbelievers alike, amazed at what God was doing in the church. This power wasn't given. Notice the wonders and signs were done by the apostles. It wasn't given to everyone in the church. It was given to validate the authority of their message. And again, once we have the Bible, we have the authority of scriptures. With the biblical canon complete, there's no more need for further signed gifts. How does that work in the church today? How, how can we see this, this fear come upon others, that they recognize that this is God's work? There's an interesting verse or passage in John 14. We have a promise there that's often twisted by modern charismatics who talk about these greater works. John 14, 12 through 14. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. You think about that. What's greater than what happened in the New Testament? What's greater than healing? What's greater than people being raised from the dead? I'll tell you. A soul that is saved. A person that's rescued for all of eternity because they've turned to Christ. The work of salvation. That's what he's talking about in John 14. That's the responsibility of the church to continue carrying to the gospel to the ends of the earth. Does our church demonstrate that kind of power of God? Are we seeing answers to our prayers? Are we seeing lives that are radically transformed by God's grace? Are we involved in worldwide outreach with the gospel of Christ? Notice also, lastly, they grew closer together in unity. 
verses 44 through 47. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. They were united in faith. Notice, it says, all that believed. This sharing was done within the church, within the family of God. Everybody in the church was involved. They were united in faith. They were united in love. All that believed worked together. Isn't it wonderful to, to have that unity because of the love that Christ gives us? They shared that. They sacrificed for each other. And some have said, well, that sounds a lot like socialism to me. And it's been called Christian communism. It's nothing of the sort. Number one, it was voluntary. It, it was not required under governmental law. It was something that was motivated by the love they had. Second, it was intelligent. Paul had advised the, Christ, uh, the Corinthians in their giving in 2 Corinthians 8.13, For I mean that not that other men be eased and ye burdened. This was something that was a sharing intelligently. This person has a greater need than I do. I'm going to give to them. Third, it was overseen by spiritual men chosen for the task. Deacons were the ones who made sure that the widows weren't being neglected in the daily distribution of the, of the good, of the foods and the funds that they needed. United in faith, united in love, united in worship, verse 46. They continuing daily with one accord in the temple. They were united in their daily routines of life, verse 46. Where? From house to house. They had people over. They were hospitable. What did they do? Here, not talking about a church ordinance, but a meal. They, they broke bread from house to house and did eat their meat. How did they do it? It's an insight, just a window into what it looked like as they got together in these houses. They ate with gladness and singleness of heart. They were joyful and they were focused. They agreed on things. Satisfied that God was at the center of their lives. Last in verse 47, they were united in their testimony. They were praising God. They had favor with all the people. Their lives were attractive to others. And God continued to add daily to his church. Notice daily as mentioned before. They continued daily in the basics of the Christian faith. And now God added daily such as should be saved. The spiritual state of the church is measured by the spiritual state of every, uh, every member here. Are you continuing in the most important things, in doctrine, in fellowship, in participating in the Lord's Supper, in prayers? Does your life demonstrate that God is working in and through you in a mighty way that people will see radical transformations taking place because of his word? Are you unselfish in the way that you show love to others in the body of Christ? Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the pattern of the early church, and I pray that you would help us to do the things that we need to do to allow you to work through us. Lord, we so long to see you add to your church daily such as should be saved. We don't want to just come and just meet and just sing and
and go home the same way that we came. I pray that you'll help us to be prepared to be equipped to reach a lost and dying world with the gospel of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.